0: levity at times too, wouldn't you agree? Not only joy but some levity, sometimes humor at a brother's expense, I would say. Such a pleasure to be with you and I must tell you that while Donna and I are getting on a plane this Thursday to fly to Kelowna to be with our eldest daughter, husband, and our three grandchildren there, I kind of wish I had uh, a foot in two worlds, meaning that we could come and be part of all the good things that Seekers is engaged with through this season, and it is a wonderful season. It still is part of the tradition within the Canadian context that people are interested in what Christmas means and want experiences for their family, not necessarily knowing that the gospel is going to be shared, not understanding the gospel is the foundation of Christmas, but wanting experience And we can capitalize on that, bringing friends and extended family who do not yet know Jesus to be with us, not only celebrating for ourselves because we love it, but celebrating so that others alongside of us might hear what we hear and know what we know and join God's forever family. As we're studying this morning from the passage that Pastor Ronald just read, It's encouraging for us to not only understand the hope of the gospel that is ours in the Christmas season, but that the hope that we have that we wait for still. There is a present but not yet experience um, in the Christian life that I want to share with you. And as we do, let me just uh, lead you one more time in prayer, and then we will study together this passage of God's word. Father, thank you. That you are clear within your word that we are, that not only are we made in your image and likeness and bear that image, but that we have become separated, we've dishonored you, and we live in shame. But you did not leave us in that state. You were willing to send your own son, your son was willing to come in the plan that you as a perfect holy trinity were willing to undertake so that we who were far from you living in darkness and despondency without hope or help were won to you by your grace and kindness, your sacrifice of your son, his his willingness to lay down his life that we might return to you. We celebrate that in this season because without his birth, there would be no salvation. We celebrate this in this season and pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see and a heart that is inclined towards you, that we would receive every good thing you have in store for us. So may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our heart today, bring you honor and glory that you are worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen. As we're leaning into this passage of Scripture, I I want to begin about how Christmas can fuel our hope in Jesus Christ. And I want to start off by telling you hope is rooted in the desire and the possibility for a better future. And it might be quite specific, a, a better marriage, a better family, a better job, a better degree of health. But that is all future-oriented, if you would agree. It's because our present reality is lacking and we want something better. We're hungry for something that is good and lasting and better. Narrowing the scope of the word, hope then is future-oriented. Because if you have it now, you're not looking for the future, you're satisfied with what you have. And in recent years, many of the social sciences have researched this term, hope, and discovered many things about it. The first I want to share with you is that hope implies there is the possibility of a better future, according to the famed hope researcher, his name is C.R. Snyder, and it shows up at the worst possible time when things are dire and difficult, but can keep us going during those hard moments. I remember being at university, and my sister sent me a card, and it started by, cheer up, things could be worse. You opened the card, it says, so I cheered up, and sure enough, things got worse. But hope is the antidote for that fear. Hope is what keeps that heart yearning for something that is better than our current experience. And many of you understand fully what that means. But the second thing that I would like to suggest that social science has discovered is if during the difficulty we can see a faint glimmer, just just a a spark of something that is better than hope opens us up. It, It changes your orientation. You begin looking forward instead of being focused on the loss of the past or the frustration of the present. That's what Barbara Fredrickson, a positive psychology researcher, discovered. And I want to suggest to you that the current social science simply reaffirms what the scripture has been teaching us all along. For example, in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs, we have in chapter 13, verse 12, this statement, hope deferred, meaning what you're waiting for doesn't happen makes what? Your heart sick. Well, that's called depression in another phrase, right? Your mental uh, focus becomes distorted because what you had anticipated is not going to be fulfilled. There's loss in that. There's mourning in that. There's grief in that. There's dissatisfaction. There's disappointment. There's all of those negatives that will move us away from hope to something less. Hope deferred makes your heart sick. No, that was written... A long time ago, friends, something that social research has currently discovered, but we've noted in the scripture for a very long time. And Proverbs 23, verses 17 to 19 also says, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. So this is telling us two things. Not only reaffirming that hope is future-oriented, not only telling us that it has something to do with where your eyes are fixed, but it says in that last verse, you can choose your hope. In other words, what you fill your mind with, what you're focused on, will determine largely the degree of your hope in your future. So that's why it says in that verse, in that cluster, hear my son and be wise and direct your heart, push your heart in the right way to be fueled by the hope that God alone can bring. So do you notice in the last proverb that you're choosing it? In other words, hope is not simply a future you want, but it can be a future that you couldn't know to want that is based in the promises that God alone can give you and fulfills. And that's different than the world can find. It's not so much about positive thinking. It's more about the direction of your heart towards those things that God wants you to have. Because, you see, the fear of the Lord, as it's written in that text, the fear of the Lord, right? That there's a future that we should be fearing him, not fearing, as it were, not directing our our hearts towards those people who are around us that are not fearing God, but when we direct our heart towards him, then we find what it is that he has for us. Because there are, the fear of the Lord, if we use that term in the Old Testament, which is common both in the book of Proverbs, in the Psalms, and in other places, we would wonder, what does that mean? Like, why should I be afraid of the one who's bringing me hope? That doesn't make sense to me, but it does if you understand what fear really means in this context. In the first place, this fear of the Lord does not mean an irrational fear that defines logic. For example, some of you might be afraid of clowns. Well, maybe if you've seen some of those terrible horror movies about clowns, that fits. But why would you be afraid of a clown? A clown is funny and hilarious and designed to entertain. It doesn't fit a category of being logical. Now, I'm not suggesting you can't have an illogical fear, but I am suggesting that there are fears that don't make sense. You know, the fear of touching a wooden spoon, or the fear of what? You know what I'm saying? It just doesn't seem to make sense, but you have it. You hold it. And it belongs to a category of irrational fear. It doesn't make sense to you, or maybe even people who are around you. But a second category of fear that we all possess is called primal fear. It's the fear of not being safe. It's the fear of something happening that will threaten you, or is threatening you. And do you know that primal fears, when they're triggered, are not cognitive? Meaning you don't think about them, you just act. When something is coming at you and threatens you, you're not even aware of how quickly your feet and hands are moving to make yourself safe and the people around you who are safe. It's called this deep, innate survival. It's something that's a gift of God that he's placed deeply within us. And primal fear says to us, your death is possible, and you do everything you can then to step away from that. Uh, We all have that, that innate reaction that happens literally, neurologists would say, in nanoseconds, which is so small, they're very hard to measure, and your feet are already moving before you even tell yourself to run. There's a third category of fear that is called rational fear, and it's the kind of fear that we learn. We learn not to put our hands on hot stoves, even though they don't look hot. When someone says, caution, that stove has been hot, I learned that from experience because my parents said, that is a hot stove, and I was quite young, maybe three or four, and I looked at them and said, but it doesn't look hot. Well, I put my hand on it and burnt my hand. Actually, it was Mark Twain who made some humor out of this when he said, you know, when the cat sits on a hot stove, it learns never to do that again. Unfortunately, it learns to never sit on a cold one either because it can't distinguish. So all stoves are potentially dangerous. You understand what I'm saying? These are learned patterns. So fear in this sense is a fear that is earned in the same way that we see a caution fence around a large electric transformer. And it's got all of those sort of jagged things of like lightning coming off of it. And we go, oh, let's avoid that. Because if we have contact with that, we might not be the same person afterwards. Would you agree? That's a learned fear, a rational fear. Now, God, our Father, we learn in the scriptures, is not a person we can trifle that we can pretend in front of, that we could treat indifferently or cavalierly or negatively. Because he is the creator, the sustainer, holy, powerful. He is the God who judges, who lives in unapproachable light. And yet, at the same time, we know, because of who Jesus is, that he gives us access to a father that we would otherwise be so afraid of, we would avoid him. And gives us the same access that a child would have with an omnipotent dictator. No fear. Why? Because the child knows that leader in a way the rank and file do not knows his kindness knows his goodness and so we have come into the presence of god because through christ god our father has removed our shame clothed us in the righteousness of jesus is adopting us into his forever family promises to love us with an everlasting love that he alone will give and will never cancel and this is what the bible means when it says we have passed from darkness into light. Why then would we fear this God? Because we know his power, and while he is for us, we will watch carefully that we bring him honor and not disservice. Makes sense. So why then do we need hope if we have God on our side? And the short answer is because at the present time, we're locked into uncertainty. Uncertainty means we have no control over our present and we cannot control our future. We cannot determine our height, we cannot determine how many hairs we have on our head, let alone how long we're going to keep them. Isn't that true? Yeah, have you come to that stage where the hair on your head is waving goodbye? We just understand that when he numbers the hair on your head that for some that's less of a task than others. Now, when I'm teasing like this, I'm saying God knows you intimately, deeply, and is concerned about your life. If he knows all of these things, how will he not fail to love you is the scripture. That's the logic and rationale behind it. But when you and I are locked into the uncertainty that we do not know tomorrow, We cannot with certainty count that it will be like today, that it will continue, that we'll enjoy all the things in the future that we're enjoying now. We live with what? Maybe fear, maybe anxiety, certainly uncertainty, and the issue is we can lose hope. It can be like a drain in our life, and we just kind of feel that that optimism of our life is is oozing away, is just floating away because we're not in charge. And Paul uses this word hope just as we're often using it with the uncertainty and the maybe piece that's attached to it when he writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 7 and he says, oh I don't want to see you for now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you. And then he adds If the Lord permits. Meaning what? I have no control over this. I don't know what's gonna happen in the future. And so here is Paul the Apostle who's written so much of the New Testament describing fully and functionally and powerfully and dramatically the grace of God that we all experience saying, I live with uncertainty every day. Now do you? The answer is yes you do. You just don't know do you? You want to know. Some of us go to great lengths to try to know, but the truth is, in the scripture, we don't know. So where does this lead us? It leads that the Bible gives us another way to use the word hope. It's not rooted in the uncertainty of our life, but it's rooted outside of us in the person of God and his infallible, unchanging nature and word. So when God says, this is what I'll do for you, it's certain. What is uncertain is we might not know when. That's part of what Paul is talking about in the passage of Scripture we read at the very beginning. And I'd like you to turn again to Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, because this is what Paul writes to us. When he says to us in verse 15, For I consider that the suffering of this present time, or the sufferings, plural, of this present time, are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He's saying we are locked into a pretty difficult time. Would you agree with that? Have you had losses in your life? Ones you don't know if you can survive, let alone want to survive because they flatten you? Disappoint you, frustrate you, and in anguish you cry out, oh God, why? And you realize, as Paul writes, because you're locked into an uncertain world that is full of calamity and pain and disappointment and loss, Christian and non-Christian alike. Would you agree? Well, it rains on the just and the unjust, that's very positive, but do the just and the unjust also suffer similar fates of disease and plague and pandemic? Christian people went to the hospital, probably in the same numbers that non-Christian people went to the hospital. It'd be rather stunning, wouldn't it, if no Christians got COVID? Now, we might pray that, way: oh God, protect me, it's a reasonable prayer to ask, and you may well be giving God thanks and praise that he has, But is there a guarantee that this will not touch you? No, Romans 8 is telling us we're born into this circumstance, this uncertainty. In summary, we need hope because we live in uncertain times. Throughout the Gospels, we read of the ailments and illnesses and many other things that devastated families in those days, and infant mortality was a common experience. Men and women starting their families lost children to fevers and illness and unexplained issues, nutrition, that they just didn't understand in that time. Grief, loss, uncertainty was everyday experience in the life of the majority. Which captures powerfully in verse 18 what he said, and also develops it in a surprising way in verses 19 and 20, because Paul says, Uh, You know, what we're experiencing can't be compared with what's coming. That's future-oriented, right? In other words, he's saying there is something coming that will actually obliterate from our mind and memory all of the things that we've experienced so far. It's incredible to think of it in those terms. Not that we won't have the memory. It is that we won't be living in those memories Because of what God is bringing to us. Look at verses 19 and 20. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And here's the kicker. In hope. What that means is that when we were at our worst, defied God, and the curse fell on this planet, God was not done with the planet, He wasn't done with humanity, and He had a purpose in our futility. Not only our futility, but the whole of the futility of the planet. And you say, well, what's futile about the planet? Well, just think about it. So much decay and disease going on the planet. Wouldn't you agree? And what Paul is actually saying is that creation itself mourns that experience, feels locked into something it cannot change. We understand this, don't we, famines? We understand eruptions of volcanoes. We understand how this world is gripped right now in global warming. It's alarming, isn't it? It should be alarming. It's part of the futility that grips the planet. And it's part of humanity's work, at least if we listen to science currently, that we're in the mess that we're in, and we have no idea where it's going to lead, do we? Uh, it could be chaotic, could be challenging. So in these verses, Paul is confirming our general observations. We're locked into loss and less. And Paul writes, as you think about today and tomorrow, understand that God has a plan and he's leading towards us. And if you're like me, you're going, well, what is that plan? Tell me, where is it that you're taking us? And there is a future that God is going to bring to us. And this is what he writes in verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What does that mean? I don't fully know. But I can give you some maybe likes. Imagine the lion and the lamb laying down together without fear. Prophet talks about that in the Old Testament. Imagine the child playing by the mouth of a snake's entrance. And the snake comes out, and they have a, a lovely moment. No bite, no poison, no fear. What? Can't tell you how it works. Just can tell you that there's going to be a change in creation as we know it, that it's no longer under the bondage of decay. I don't know what's going to happen to the compost system, or the sewage system, or all of those things, the disease cycles, the pandemics, the plagues. I have no idea. I just know that he says, one day, no more death, no more tears, no more mourning, no more separation. He actually says, again, in this like and as in the book of Revelation, we're not going to need the sun because God himself will be our light. I don't know what that means. I don't know, clearly, if it's metaphorical or if it's going to be concrete and exact. Literal. I don't know. As you read the book of Revelation, you come away with more questions and answers often. Because there are so many pictures that are painted. Because I don't really think it's a map. I think it's pictures. What it's saying is fuel your hope. There is a future that is coming. And this is what we're told in the scripture here, if you can receive it. Is that the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ has a larger effect than your salvation. It changes the planet. It changes Creation. It changes the corrupting, decaying order of life. Wow. He's reminding us of these things because we get locked into the current paradigm and we can't see the future until we read the promise. We know further, he loops back and he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until right now. I don't know about you, but that's an awful picture. I've gone through childbirth with my wife three times. It was traumatizing each time. Now, out of each of those lovely children... And I know that my wife was in childbearing for hours. I wanted to see that relieved. We are grateful for the birth of our first child. But in that entire process, that writhing, that pain, that discomfort, that waiting. This is what Paul is talking about. And he says we know the whole of creation has been in that phase from what? The time of Adam until now. Waiting. Waiting in anguish, waiting in anguish, waiting. Then he writes, and not only creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly, what? We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. Again, I'm not sure all that it entails, but I can hardly wait for the day when we will be different. Right? There is a kind of taste that we have right now called grace through faith in Jesus that we know by faith we are his family. But we're waiting for the day when all of this that we've been talking about will be done away with. And we will ever be with Jesus. I'm sure that the experience will be more than overwhelming. And it will be incredibly satisfying. And we may at that point, like Job, drop to our knees and repent and say, Oh God, it's better than I could have ever imagined. If I had held on to this a little more... With a little more strength, I would have lived with you before you with all that much more intent and vibrancy. That's the design of this passage, to fuel our hope. And Paul writes that when you groan with arthritis and ailment and mourning and sadness over all that you see and experience, and it reminds you of the futility of life and you're groaning along with nature itself, fuel your hope because something good is on its way. It will not forever delay. So do you see that Paul says that we have it in Christ, but we still groan. We're still living in the agony, but we're living not without promise. Uh, We have some boundaries on our experience. We have hope. So then, how can we live in this in-between phase, groaning along with creation as we wait? And he writes that in verse 24, for in this hope, we were saved. It began that moment you trusted Jesus. And maybe in those moments, you had no idea what was coming in. You knew enough that you didn't want to live in shame and separation and the awfulness of your sin that deserves judgment. And Jesus wipes that away, gives you a new name, a new identity, a new belonging, and a new hope. And then he writes, now hope that is seen isn't hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You understand that, don't you? It's so so logical, so clear. Why do you hope for something if you already hold it? You would never say to your wife, well, one day I hope to be married. She would smack you on the head and say, buddy, what do you think we are? You know what I'm saying. I'm teasing. But the point I'm making is you don't hope for what you have. You have it. So then that's not hope any longer. That's living in sight. But if we hope for what we do not see, Paul then says it can fuel patience. I go, oh no, not for me. It's the opposite, Paul. Then with impatience do I wait it. I know what he's saying is when your confidence is in God who has set the time in the season, you wait for it because you don't doubt the power to deliver it. And you know the timing is his, not yours. And you wait in what's called confident expectation. Another word hope. Now, this is one of the themes of Advent, the hope of what God has promised in the past. But I'm here to tell you, folks, there's something yet to come in our salvation. It's not full and it's not complete. So the question is, how can Christmas renew your faith in Jesus? Well, by using some very simple techniques and tools with all that you experience in this Christmas season. Every time you see a home beautifully decorated with lights, you'll say, that's gorgeous, look at this. And then you can say, something better is coming. A light that will never be extinguished, the presence of God himself. Do you see how you can build on what you see through this season as a way that fuels your hope of what is coming? So that when you give a gift, even as the wise men gave gifts to Jesus and we give gifts to each other, we can say, oh, I'm giving you this gift, but nothing compares to the gift I have received. And God, there is a greater gift yet coming. When I will be yours and you will be mine and we will be in a life that is hard for me to imagine. Do you see You can use all the things of the Christmas season both to celebrate what God has done for you in Christ and fuel the hope you have for what he is going to do in your future. So when you come and you eat, and probably you're going to eat too much and you might have to say to God, I'm sorry, it was so tempting, I I overate. That's what feasts are for, aren't they? Genuinely. And you can say, but one day, I will be at the marriage table of the Lamb, and we will feast as we've never feasted, and celebrate as we have never celebrated, and it has only just begun. Oh, God, I'm grateful for this turkey and all its trimmings. I'm grateful for this ham and all we're eating with it. I'm grateful for all this lovely Indian food, Sri Lankan treats. But the best is yet to come. There was an old lady in a church not unlike this one. And when she died, she gave these instructions to her family and her pastor, bury me with a fork. They said, a fork? Bury me with a fork. And pastor, don't you know, this is the most meeting, eating church I've ever been in. And when we have one of these great celebrations, this is usually what the person that's hosting says, now save your fork. Dessert is coming. Do you see the connection? The best is yet to come. It's a simple and a corny story. But it needs to settle the truth and anchor it in our heart. This life is not what you're locked into. And Paul actually says, if we're only celebrating Jesus here and now, of all men, we are the most to be pitied. Why? Because we give up to be in alignment with God all of the things that the world is indulging in. Why? Because we believe that that will never satisfy you, but what God provides for us in Christ is the best that is yet to come. It's worth it. The sufferings of this present time aren't even on the same page to be compared to the glory that is ours in the future in Jesus. Go through this season with joyfulness, but remember the best is yet to come. Fuel your hope in this Christmas season. Father God, thank you for the joy of your word and the joy of this season and the hope that lies ahead of us. May we lean into it and may we with joyfulness share it. And we pray it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.